and welcome to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that celebrates the women behind the scenes of the British film industry. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. Hello, pod pals, and welcome to another episode in lockdown. How are you all holding up? I saw lots of groups of people in parks at the weekend and having barbecues, and it's making me feel like I'm the only person still holed up inside not seeing my friends. So there's that. Uh, But on a cheerier note, Back on Bank Holiday Monday, I had a really wonderful chat with Emma Norton, who is an in-house producer at Ireland's Element Pictures, uh, where she was also formerly head of development. And she's worked on a number of their big titles, including The Favourite, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, Room, The Lobster, Frank and The Guard. She's also produced Rosie and A Date for Mad Mary. And most recently, she exec produced the smash hit TV series that everyone's been devouring, Normal People. We talk about getting fired from her first job as an agent's assistant, freelancing, working for Film 4, making the move to Ireland, building relationships with writers and directors, and the difference between adapting material for TV as opposed to film, as well as how lockdown has been treating her. Speaking of treats, I think this is one, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. There are lots of pockets of wisdom inside. This is episode 53 of Best Girl Grip. job in the film industry was as an agent's assistant and I had I was maybe 22 23 I'd never been an assistant before I was not a very good assistant it has to be said I was pretty bad and that was partly because I was a bit out of my depth (laughs) and partly because and the person who I was assistant to had had the same assistant for eight years and had like a really set way of doing things and I came in without a clue and like I didn't know the right etiquette of when to serve coffee in a meeting and the types of coffee and I just got everything wrong it was I was also not very tactful at that time and so like I would sometimes say things that were way too way too honest in in those (laughs) scenarios I was really really ill-suited so that was really short-lived. I did that job for like six months, mm-hmm. I think. So in some respects, it was quite useful because it was like a massive taste of failure really early on in my career. So it was a real, in lots of ways, it was a real setback. But what I learned in that job was that I really liked reading scripts and I really liked talking to writers and I really liked talking to directors. And those key principles were essentially what <laughs> sort of set me off on my career because. After I after that job ended, and that, I'll be honest, like I was fired uh, after that job ended, I decided to be a freelance script reader, and partly because I was quite bruised and I didn't like the idea of going to work in an office again and not being good at it. So I just decided mm. I'd work on my own, and I set myself the target that if I could make eight hundred pounds a month script reading in London, then I could live off that at, at that time. Mm. And so I then went about getting as many script reading jobs as I could possibly get. First of all, I want to talk about why you applied to be an agent's assistant. Was it that you were working your way up to being an agent or did you just know that that was a good route into the industry? Uh, it's a good, yeah, it's a good question. Before that, I'd been working in comedy clubs. I worked for a chain of comedy clubs and I was a sort of assistant mm-hmm. comedy booker. And essentially at that time, I just wanted to get into 
a job a job that was in some way in kind of the film industry and the the, the comedy one would be was like well I like comedy and that's not a bad place to work but then the film industry is like I knew that I wanted that sort of job but I was also juggling lots of other things at that time like I was writing bar reviews for Time Out I was writing like hotel descriptions for a hotel website I was kind of doing anything that I could that I thought was like vaguely in line with a kind of creative career that film I think was the thing I really wanted to get into but I didn't have a sense really of what that path would look like I certainly didn't have a long-term sense of what the job would be that I would go to so the agent's assistant job like this is so old-fashioned now I think it was in the newspaper so it was really like you know scanning for job ads and applying for them that sort of thing and so it was it wasn't like I had a master plan I mean the one thing was that uh, at university some of my more kind of savvy friends got jobs as script readers and that got them into like uh, one of the girls at university was doing script reading during university the day she finished our finals she started work in the BBC drama department and went on to script edit um, Bleak House oh that was like within the first few months of us leaving university so I was aware that that could lead to things and and I thought that her job was like amazingly exciting in the back of my mind I was like well this is something that takes you somewhere but I didn't really know where like I didn't think oh my plan is to become a producer Mm. I didn't have that in my head particularly and when you went freelance did you kind of know where to start or who to approach like BBC films or film four or production companies well that was the good thing about the, the the agenting job and actually that's where you um that's one of the real bonuses of being an agent. Obviously, you're in touch with everybody. So from working in the agency, I suddenly had a much better sense of who all the production companies were. And some of them knew who I was from contacting them in relation to our client. And then, yeah, I sort of then just targeted everything from the, yeah, the BFI to Film 4, BBC. But I also knew that that wasn't going to be enough because I needed lots of it. So I also went to all the theatres and I ended up script reading for PFI, Soho Theatre, QDOS, Scott Free, Channel 4 eventually. It was really spread out and you had to work really fast to make mm. it add up to anything. Because the Soho Theatre rates were like you got £15 a script, script report. Yeah, that's, and you that's had to write a report that was then shown to the, the, the writer as well. So it, it had to be a really like tactful report. That was a really, that was really useful. What was your next step beyond freelance script reading? A couple of things happened. And, and again, these are, this is it's all about timing, isn't it, in terms of when you progress. The mm. one thing I was script reading for Scott Free, and then somebody in Scott Free went on maternity leave. So they brought me in to cover her, some of her maternity leave, which, again, I was totally, like, it was really nice of them. But I was, I was a script reader, and then they brought me in to cover a kind of head of development maternity leave. Wow. <laughs> which again I made some real like I made some real mess ups in that but I did lots of I read lots of their projects I gave lots of notes and then that ended because the maternity leave ended and then around that time Channel 4 brought in people there was like a kind of there was like two weeks kind of in-house reading going and so they got me into the office and I just came in and did loads of reading and just told everybody about the scripts that had been coming in uh, and then I went for a drama job at Channel 4 and didn't get it. And then a film job came up and I finally got um, an in-house like, development assistant job at Film mm. 4. And that was that was brilliant. It was like I came on board at the same time as Sam Lavender. 
so there was a there's a sort of new injection into the team and it was just really good fun it's like one of those things where you very qu- quickly and unexpectedly be- find yourself in a dream job surrounded by really clever unusual mm. people and you're managed like and I and I the stuff I was doing had a value you know like the things I was reading people responded to my my kind of critiques of the, of the script and also at that stage I just started going to the theatre all the time and amassed kind of huge bank of uh, writer knowledge and the, the sort of structure at that point for wasn't the same as it is now it was much smaller it wasn't a kind of it wasn't a line to progress up through the, the company. Right. So I hit a wall there, which was a shame. But I did kind of, in from starting as a development assistant or whatever it, I can't remember what the title was, I did manage to start meeting writers and kind of bringing in suggestions for projects and working uh, across slate projects. So that was that was a really good time, um, mm. and I was still started relationships there that have continue to be my you know the relationships that I have now and some of the writers that like I met Nicole Taylor after she just made her first short and I was mm. like you're brilliant <laughs> <laughs> like she's, she's done brilliantly since then yeah but it was really nice and it was kind of one of the things that was fun at that point was even though I was very green I could tell good writers and I could tell people that I liked that taste was then you know you then saw them go off and be hugely successful so it was you know you kind of got a bit of reassurance that your that my taste was valid or useful you know and did that come from within that sense of trusting your own taste or were there people that were saying like yes I agree and that's what gave you the confidence it's a little bit hard to say because I think there was a sense from within that what I my opinion was valid Mm. and but I think it was reinforced by the people I was working with largely sharing that opinion or like feeling that I what I was saying was right because there were definitely um, companies that I script I, I script read for that after a while wouldn't give me any more work. <laughs> you don't you mm. don't get you don't hear anything. You just don't get asked to do any more reports. Right. I think for those companies, my taste wasn't right. You know, I think that they, they were like, oh, actually, we really like that script that you just slated. Do you know? So, but in the in the kind of framework of film four, even if people disagreed with my taste, they could see they could connect with it or, or find a kind of find a value in it that coupled with my own sort of sense well this is this is how I responded to this material and I will just be honest about that I mean I think the thing I've always had is that I'm really bad at kind of finding a <laughs> finding a different way of saying things like if I think something mm-hmm. I will say what I think and uh, I've had to really uh, find different ways of modulating that in my career but I have always been very honest and when I've worked at the right places that honesty has been helpful yeah absolutely and I mean you you mentioned there that there wasn't a clear progression or at least it didn't feel like there was a ladder at film four did that feel industry-wide or or was it just specific to film four and you kind of knew that you wanted to maybe move up to a head of development or or elsewhere in the industry how did you go about doing that well basically at that time there were the kind of film four had its sort of execs and then it had the kind of production, um, you know, the sort of senior production people. And there was a whole new raft of those people, the execs, and they weren't going anywhere. No, none of them were going to leave. They all mm. left their jobs. And without any of them le- leaving, then there wasn't anywhere to go. So, like, it, I mean, that, that actually changed really shortly after I left. But I, I looked at it and I was young and I kind of thought, well, I'll just go off and work at a production company. And actually, you were quite encouraged to work in a production company 
by the people at Film 4 because they all felt that it, that was really useful experience to get and I wanted I wanted that experience because I'd kind of come in in a funny way you know of just being a kind of freelancer and then in into a commissioner so I I left Film 4 in 2008 and then started job hunting just at the point where everyone could start to smell that the recession was coming and I was going for meetings with um, heads of development and and they were all like oh this isn't a good time to <laughs> left um, your job yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I started to panic a little bit because I was going for lots of really good meetings and the people were really nice but not very much was coming up I was still kind of relatively relaxed about it because I didn't really understand <laughs> what the recession would mean but then I met with a woman called Lee Magaday mm. who was head of development at uh, Element at that time we had a great coffee and she told me about all the projects at Element and I knew about Element's work from Film 4 and, and she said that there's a job going in Dublin and I don't know whether you'd be up for it, but if you are, then that's an opportunity and it was a job as a development exec. And I'd really liked Lee in the meeting that we'd had and I kind of thought, well, I've actually gotten very few ties. Like I just got married, but my husband's a writer, so we'd always said that he could look could live and work anywhere so I flew to Dublin met with Ed and Andrew got offered a job and then like two weeks later I found a flat and came over to Dublin with like suitcase <laughs> with some cutlery oh, wow. and some clothes <laughs> did that yeah. feel quite a scary leap because especially I don't know like did London feel like a bubble like that's why the film industry was happening and you were stepping outside of it or it it felt like you know um, parallel and exciting to be doing that well I think it was really helped by the fact that, I mean, I really liked Ed and Andrew when I came over and the company seemed lively and all of those things. Probably the decision was particularly helped by the fact that Sue Bruce Smith, who worked at Film 4 at the time and who's just recently passed away, she lived in Dublin. And I spoke to her a lot about what it would mean to move to Ireland. And she was living in Ireland, but obviously working in London. Mm. And had an incredible career and she sort of reassured me about what it would be like to live in Ireland and what the challenges might be like and whether I whether she could see me succeeding in it and she did she thought that it would be a good move for me and also that like I was kind of outgoing enough to make it work she gave me some really good advice and I was also just at that point in my life where I was kind of I don't know I wanted an adventure and it was that, but it was still doing things that I knew that I could do in a company that I knew the work was good. It was a really interesting time and, you know, it was different. It was hugely different working in a production company from working at Film 4 and I suddenly had to learn a load of stuff that I hadn't before. Can you speak to that difference a bit? Like, why was it encouraged that that would be helpful? What What is different about working, yeah, for a broadcaster or a commissioner to working for a production company? Well, I suppose, the, like, the, the, the first thing is that you have to kind of, you have to learn to sell your stuff because if you're working in full four, you're there, you're all powerful, you're the one who gets to say yes or no. Mm. And then once you get into a production company, you're... You're, the, you're on the other side of that and you're suddenly faced with all of the no's and all the reasons why people are saying no and you know that language because you've used it yourself already and you know how hard it is and you know how hard it is to get the highs because it's just much more of a gamble and loads of projects die, you know, loads of projects just don't get anywhere. And I also 
from a fairly kind of privileged position of just working on editorially on things once you're in a production company then I had to learn much more about budgeting development and um, applying for funding and like very shortly after joining the company I had to do a, a media application which is um, these big slate funding applications and yeah the, for the Creative Europe yeah, Creative Europe. Yeah. yeah, I used to work for them, so I was on the other you side know. of receiving. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite hefty things to. <laughs> to put this together. is it. Like basically, the company, they, their last slate, slate application had been unsuccessful, so they mm. were really like, "You need to get the money." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I had never been in any. I'd never done anything like this before in my life, and it mm. was like, "Okay, can't fail this time." But yeah, like those huge, those huge applications that take so much attention and like real attention to detail and uh, across so many different aspects of the industry so that was a really huge learning curve very quickly um, and luckily we got the money and that set things off on a good <laughs> a good path yeah and coming back to sort of when you first joined element what what was its reputation like you know because it was working quite solely in Ireland in the independent space and across the time that you've been there it sort of really blossomed into this kind of international production company so I'm just wondering if yeah you can talk about that change alongside your own progression in the company yeah it's interesting because um as I was saying when I joined we sort of hit the recession and it was challenging it was a challenging time for the company and then then we made the guard uh and I've got to get the order right of when all these things happened so the guard was the guard was a film that actually really sort of changed the it was a lifeboat of a project in a way because it did really really well for element and especially kind of locally on a distribution level like it did really well it was a huge boost for our distribution arm and that gave us a lot of that sort of created a, a kind of confidence in what we could make and also sort of reiterated the focus that when we could release a film in Ireland release it well that actually that was really valuable to us mm. so through those years there was a sustained interest in creating really high quality films for the Irish market but that would work internationally and that sort of has continued and in a way each film kind of opens the door to, to new filmmakers and new films so in a way that we've carried on making smaller films that have really been really interesting to us and we've never there's never been pressure to only make big films or only make commercial films and I think part of that freedom about going well we're going to make we're going to make Room which is like a massive wonderful starry film with Oscar nominations but we're also going to make a film called A Date for Mad Mary which is a first-time filmmaker and is going to play some smaller festivals but will have an audience in Ireland we know it will and we we value it mm. and, and I like working in that way that kind of good projects are allowed to be good projects whether they're big and they're going to go to the Oscars or they're going to be kind of local local favorites but I think that to go back to what I was saying about the director relation like the director relationship obviously Ed and Lenny had had this long-term relationship having made Adam and Paul they've been to university together they're old friends and before I joined they made Garage and Lenny been finding his next film uh, for the first few years that I was there and then we got on to making what Richard did which got him back in this kind of energy of making films regularly and while what Richard did was in development Frank was also in development what Richard did went first and then Frank followed quite quickly mm. afterwards and I think the other thing that that sort of that pattern revealed to us is that it's really 
exciting for filmmakers to be able to have projects in development so that they can go off, make a film, come back and then know what their next film is going to be mm. rather than make a film, put all the years and the time into that and then start from scratch again. So we always had multiple projects with Lenny, but the kind of effort and focus on making sure that he had a slate and that felt at home and that everybody was invested in making sure he had interesting projects. That was one of the kind of principles that became a bit more, I think we put more energy behind around the time of Room. And then also around that time was the, the sort of relationship with Yorgos began. And we brought Yorgos on to the favourite really back in the day. And then we decided to do The Lobster with him while the favourite was bubbling away for years. And then yeah, we did... Because that was like a 20 year, 20 year development or something I heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really, really was a super long time. But the great thing was that because we'd started a conversation with him about that film, we then get to, got to make two other films with him before then. Mm. And, and probably that stood us really well to make the favourite in its best form, you know? So I guess the idea of being a home to directors whose work we felt we really understood became a kind of guiding principle during that time. And the focus over those years was to find other filmmakers who we could have those relationships with. And the great thing about Lenny and Yorgos is they themselves are much admired by other directors. And, you know, some directors are huge fans of Yorgos and some directors are huge fans of Lenny's and lots of writers are really great fans of Lenny's work and how he works with writers. Mm. And all of those, each film becomes a kind of key to opening up the door of a new relationship. For years, I really wanted to work with Joanna Hogg and I sort of written that in my notebook, like, I don't know, a long time ago. And then um, over the last couple of years, that started to happen. And that was partly because I kept asking to meet with her and all those things. But actually, it was also her appreciation of Yorgos's work and being a huge fan of the work that we'd made with him that made her feel that we might be somewhere interesting for her to work. So there's all the work that we do about building relationships and getting out there and meeting people, but also filmmakers love watching films. And when they see a well-made film, they think, well, how did that happen? Mm. <laughs> you know, and who are the people who were, who were behind that? Making good work has really been, the, I suppose, one of the huge things that has allowed us to continue to make good work. And let's talk about that sort of relationship building because it is such a vital part of development. You know, what's your approach um, to, to having that, that honest relationship with writer-directors so that it's not just all about, you know, you giving to them, that it's, it's kind of a dialogue and it works both ways? Yeah, it's, it's like, it's the job, isn't it? That is the whole part of, the, I mean, everything else kind of has to be filtered through how good the relationship is. And like, I, what's the key to this? I mean, I put a lot of time and thought into making sure that each person I work with, I work with them in the way that suits them. Mm. And so I try to find the a kind of the language that is that works for that relationship. So with Lenny, for example, he's really open and will hear anything. He wants to know what people think and if they're clever and they are sort of saying saying things because they mean something, he will listen and he'll process it. And so that's been a really encouraging kind of relationship to base other relationships on other people don't want to hear that much or they don't want to discuss in that way or they want to share their ideas when they've formed them they don't want to share them in a in a phase to put them under a microscope to be picked apart so being conscious of how people 
how people want you to interact with them is something I think you have to be really responsible about. And I've had relationships with filmmakers that filmmakers I really, really admire. And the relationship's gone awry. Like, you know, you've been working on something and it can slip into a negative phase where the confidence goes on both parts and it's really hard to get that back again. And and I've like there are some there's some filmmakers and writers that they don't want to hear every thought in my head they just want to hear the the crucial ones Mm. so you have to really filter and make sense of your own thoughts before you present any of them to them I think it's about being adaptable and also learning when you should say things I mean when I started my career I definitely thought I should say if I had something to say I should say it because it proved that that was why I was in the room that I had something to say and Mm. I've learned a lot over the years working with Ed that just because you have something to say doesn't mean you should say it. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, I, I will always be honest, but whether I, sh- whether I should or shouldn't be honest at, in a moment is something you have to kind of assess. And sometimes it's good to be quiet and good to listen. I think I'm a good listener if that's what's needed too, you know? So mm. it's a lot of, you know, obviously all relationships are based on trust. And like, I sometimes joke that meeting filmmakers, meeting writers it's like dating you know you just you're essentially trying to get to know the other person trying to understand if they think the same way as you or if like creatively there's a there's a kind of um an understanding or an intuition (laughs) a spark yeah and when it when it's there that's really exciting I was talking to a filmmaker the other day and I thought oh we're having a great chat and it was long and it was detailed and I, I was really interested in the point she was making and I kind of thought well this this is fruitful this is going to lead to something mm. and sometimes you know you, you can try and dig out a conversation over 40 minutes and it's just not there and that might not work <laughs> so yeah it's it's all about finding connections and and following your instincts like if you enjoy someone's work then getting into a conversation with them is an important thing to do and I'm wondering you know you're talking about when you're working for a production company it's sort of about packaging a project and, and being able to sell it and I'm wondering if you've ever found that frustration where you kind of really see something you've had that spark with a filmmaker but then other people aren't getting it and how are you communicating that this is someone that you found that this is a talent to watch um have you ever come up against that obstacle yes a lot and and it's really hard I mean but there's a rationale with that as well in that like often the reason that you love something is because it feels unique to you and that you feel there's an urgency in the telling of it and commissioners are bombarded with ideas and often they are the same ideas and they might not be by the same talent or they might not be as good or or any or any of those things but their their interpretation of it but you know for wrong or right is going to be managed by lots of different factors mm. so I think one of the things I've really enjoyed about working in Ireland is that I've been able to make projects here that might not have been able to get made. I might not have been able to make in the UK. Um, A Date for Mad Mary and like what Richard did and Rosie, those projects didn't have any British funding, but it wasn't because we didn't try. Mm. Like we did go to the UK uh, and we showed, we shared those projects with partners that, we've worked with consistently but they didn't see the value in them or they didn't see the place on their slate and I still feel that those are all films that have real value and I'm really proud that we made and that critically 
people have responded to them really really powerfully i mean rosie is about the was about the housing crisis in ireland which is ongoing and actually a feature of life in the uk as much as it is in ireland but a lot of people felt like it was just an irish story that they didn't um they didn't see why it would be relevant to uk audiences mm. and in fact it was incredibly relevant to uk audiences and the film sold really well it was really well reviewed and in we were lucky because in ireland the funding situation is that you can make a low budget feature with only irish money and it's really it's so competitive to make those low budget films in the uk that it's you know that's a, it's it's really hard to be able to get things like that off the ground but it, i've been able to work with talent like roddy doyle uh that i you know on a low budget feature it, which was such a dream but lots of people said no to that project and i just that one particularly i felt like it was something there was something undeniable about it to my, to my mind and ed and andrew were really supportive of getting the film made and rory gil martin who was my other producer on the project with me we sat in a taxi in the back of um on the way back from Cannes the year before making it and we'd been turned down again by uh, a funder and we both decided that we would just make it somehow <laughs> and we did and we made it over a really short time and we made it so that it could come out while the issue was still urgent and it's really rare to be able to do that with a feature film mm. those sort of opportunities then just change everything because then it's like that was the first time I produced a feature film and now now I can do you know now I can now I'm a producer but that had been a point in my career I was scared about I was like oh mm. well actually can I do this do I have those skills I don't know will anybody let me try and it took a bit of persuading but it worked out and now you know in the last going from doing that in 2018 to exec producing normal people across 2019 it's been like a huge like my career has leapt forward incredibly and that's been really exciting what was it about producing that you wanted to pursue or that, that you felt that would give you that development wasn't I think I was in a bit of a loop of feeling like my job had got really cerebral like I was thinking and analyzing all the time and I like both of those things I like fixing things I like analyzing things but it was really when things weren't getting made you're just in a loop of constant analysis mm. and, and I needed I felt like I really needed something practical and I needed, and I needed a new challenge because I kept asking myself like oh is this what I want to do is this my career like where am I going what, what am I doing I got to those kind of points and I knew that I enjoyed other aspects like I on Mad Mary I had been in the edit of Mad Mary and I also was really involved in like deciding on how the trailer was cut and how the posters were designed and all of those things and I was I really enjoyed those kind of practical activities like mm -hmm. I enjoyed the cast the casting conversations in Mad Mary so I got a sense that I wanted I just wanted things to be a bit more varied like development naturally is really varied because you're working on lots of different types of projects but the kind of activities use the same part of your brain and I really wanted like I am quite a practical person so I wanted to be able to go okay well this is a task that has a yes or a no answer and it can be finished in a day rather than this is a task that could be answered in multiple different ways and there may be different routes and one of them might be right maybe none of them are right 
and you might not make it any better. <laughs> like, so theoretical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you just mentioned normal people, which obviously we have to talk about because it's, it's taken the world by storm. Um, and were Elephant actively looking for TV projects to produce or was it that the book came out and you were like, that's something that we have to do? How did that come about? So basically, we'd been building our TV slate for a few years and we were very conscious that the world had changed and that TV was, was such a huge expanding market. So we'd been investing a lot in our team and making sure that we had more people working across TV and building the TV slate. And we had quite a lot of stuff in development, um, which is still in, still kind of, they're all still active projects. But we'd read conversations with friends and brought that on, we'd taken that on as a film project with BBC Films. We were working on that at the time. And then when the, when the manuscript for Normal People came to us, which was quite early, we were all really struck by the fact that we love Normal People. And we thought, God, it'd be amazing to get this as well. But maybe Sally won't want to give both of her beautiful books to the same production company because she doesn't know us that well yet, you know. But we, we obviously pitched ourselves pretty hard. And I think that it wasn't easy, you know, she did know us, which we were working with her, but we didn't, we weren't complacent around that at all. So what Ed, what Ed kind of focused us on was, we shared the book with Lenny and asked him to have a read. And we spoke very quickly to BBC and said, and this was all with the help of Rose Garnet. And the, and the sort of, the idea was that we would say to Sally that if she went with our offer to option the book, that it would be Lenny directing and the BBC had agreed to green light the series mm. so it would get made so it wasn't like oh let us option your book and we'll try and develop it and we'll try and set it up with the broadcaster we'll do all these things it was pre-agreed that the BBC would back us and that we would make it and that obviously became a really compelling argument for us against the other companies who were bidding for that mm. that book and so we got the rights and then it was this amazing surge of energy because we were like well, the BBC said we're going to make it, so we're going to make it. <laughs> yeah, let's go. Um, and Sally was really interested in screenwriting. Um, so she said that she was happy to come on board to, to start writing. So it was really, um, it was really energised. And I loved it from the beginning because it was like, none of this is speculative. Everything is to the purpose of getting it made. And it was really exciting. Um, and was it always a TV series? And how did that adaptation process kind of, what did that look like? How did that differ for you from a feature film? Yeah, so it was always a TV series. We, we felt really clearly that, that normal people kind of lent itself to focusing in on these episodes in their lives and using the kind of microscope of a uh, focused 30-minute episode in order to go slowly and allow us the luxury of watching them and observing them in the way that the book does. So it was never, at the beginning, it wasn't like totally defined as 30 minutes. It, the BBC were really open because it was going to go on BBC Three. So they said, well, let the episodes be whatever length you want them to be, whatever length they need to be. And that was really nice because it was, it was a free reign to allow the drama or the moments in the story to last as long as they needed to. There was no kind of, you need to hit a hook at 30 minutes in order to get everyone back for the next mm. episode. It was all about the episodes being kind of right. And so we had a lot of freedom. And in, in the end, it kind of regulated into kind of half hour-ish episodes. Some of them were longer, some of them were shorter. But it felt really naturally suited to how this book needed to be divided up. And 
we kind of in the early stages because there weren't that many tv shows on <laughs> around that were 12 episodes <laughs> 12 half mm. hours obviously six hours is really really a kind of accepted norm but we essentially with sally chopped the book up into what we thought would be kind of half hour episodes and that created 12 and so we went from there and at that stage sally was the only person writing so we just got her going and by the christmas of 2018 she had written six episodes from sort of september to december and that was amazing because it was like the sort of bank of the series was already um really established so i suppose in terms of the difference between film development obviously there's that the kind of rhythms and the structures are different but i think in a way all of those little episodes feel like films in some respect they're a small film you know and they don't have there's nobody saying oh we never talked about acts or inciting incidents or any kind of <laughs> editorial <laughs> language but we did spend a lot of time analyzing them and feeling whether the structure was right or you know i think the first the first episode ended in different places you know it was kind of oh do we go from do we end the episode on the first kiss for a while that episode ended at just mm. after the first kiss and then we realized that we could go much further and that you could actually pack loads into the, the first episode so you get to the end of the first episode and it's the suggestion of them sleeping together so you, we realized we could go make huge progress in a short space of time without sacrificing pace and at what point did Alice Birch come on board? Because she she wrote alongside Sally, or kind of, and and what was that process like? Did they kind of were they both very open to each other? Yeah. So basically, at the start of two thousand nineteen, Sally sort of realised that her next novel was calling her. So the kind of that desire to get going on that had come back, and she well, she was just really wanted to focus on it. So she asked that we find another writer to come on board with her on her on her scripts and then onto the remaining scripts of the series and so we brought on Alice and luckily it was really seamless because we've been talking to Alice about conversations with friends uh, mm-hmm. and we knew that she she loves Sally's writing and she didn't join us for conversations with friends because she had other projects on and she couldn't see how to make it as a film but then we knew that she loved it and knew that she was a Sally fan so in that in the sort of early part of the spring, we got in touch with her agent Giles and said, look, we would love Alice to help us with this if she's interested. And she's such an in-demand writer. She's so busy, but she's got an incredible Mm. capacity to take on (laughs) huge amounts of work. So she joined and it was really, really a joy to watch how she could take what Sally had started inhabit her voice and kind of and continue and build on the the original six scripts Mm. so that the the sort of two work two faces of work really fused together and then of course she started and then she sort of independently wrote the the latter half of the series and it was really like it could have been so hard to get kind of continuity of tone or continuity of voice but she really honored the book and there's so much dialogue in the book that comes directly across to the, the series and then there's so much description of behavior that comes across directly as well that it was much easier bringing those things across but I I guess the truth was that Alice just really understood normal people and understood Sally's style of writing. And has the sort of the audience reception has that exceeded your expectation or how have you felt about yeah the furore around it all? It's totally exceeded our expectations like obviously with anything you work in it for a really long time and you think it's good and 
towards the end you're just glad it's over <laughs> because it's taken such I mean Tally just takes such amount of effort mm. such a marathon of, of work but the way it's been received in lockdown has just blown our minds like all of us I don't think we thought it would connect with people as broadly as it has I did we never thought it would have as big an audience or as sort of the demographic of the audience would be so big you know we kind of to be really reductive we knew that the sort of the guardian reading uh, <laughs> there'd be a certain audience for it, from, from the kind of people who love the book and but what we didn't maybe expect was like the daily mail to get on board with it and to mm. write articles and be obsessed with it and I mean the, one of the things I've enjoyed the most is hearing about had a lot of stories of friends mothers or grandmothers and people in their 80s who are watching it and really enjoying it and I suppose that speaks to just how there's something special in Sally's book that people really really connect with but I think that we were lucky that we found people at a time when their lives were slower and when things had kind of you know, people's lives were sort of kind of pared down and mm. somehow the series has suited that rhythm I think yeah and like we're more appreciative appreciative of the slower narrative that it delivers us like we're I don't know yeah I, yeah, I think so. Agree. I think that I think loads of people, if they'd been living their normal adrenalized lives, would have been frustrated by it and maybe would have given up, mm. or you know, maybe it wouldn't have had the reach. The sort of poetry of it, which people are kind of used to in a novel or film, like, but I know loads and loads of people who would never watch films like this. You know, they would not go and watch a sort of art house independent movie, and yet they've really, really enjoyed normal people that's an achievement to make people experience drama slightly differently and to get something from it. And did you find your role on that or, or in general working at Element, do you find it creatively fulfilling? I do, yeah, I really do. I mean, I think that, I don't know that I could have found a job that allowed me to explore as many of my enthusiasms as you do get in this one job because I love words, I love stories, I love people and talking about relationships and how how and why people do things so that's one side of it but I also really like clothes and I love having conversations with people about costume and I find actors fascinating and like there's all the design aspect and all of the marketing and I really love photography and posters and all that sort of stuff so there's all the visual side of the creative process as well that I really enjoy that like if I was working in a graphic design company I could do those things but I couldn't do all the other things or you know like you couldn't it's a great job for having variety and being surrounded by people who are really talented that you can then feel excited by there are downsides like I don't read as much for pleasure as I used to because you always have your like analytical brain on <laughs> yeah a little bit and it's like my reading list is always so long that the idea that I I should I could be reading a novel for pleasure rather than reading mm -hmm. the pile of books or scripts that I, should, I haven't read yet <laughs> so that makes it that harder largely the downsides are quite small you know and speaking of lockdown has it has it changed your work at all and has it brought a slower pace to element or yeah how are you negotiating that at the moment well lockdown started for us in the period just preceding normal people coming onto tv and we were still delivering it so it was really frantic and so the first few weeks were really intense and also my bosses are great entrepreneurs they really saw the opportunity of a kind of change in production and dynamics to really energize us about finding new projects so that happened 
immediately so even before we'd finished normal people there was the real kind of call to arms of like you need to get out there talk get talking to talent and find new projects and so that was that was actually daunting because I was quite tired at that point <laughs> I was tired yeah, from yeah. the show and um, but now it's you know obviously there's the isolation of not being surrounded by your colleagues but I spend a lot of my time talking to filmmakers in Europe or in London and I was traveling a lot like mm. traveling all the time um, and the last year and this year were due to be another year of like all this continuous travel and actually you know we did storylining um, sessions with writers across the UK America and Ireland um, for conversations with friends in the first few weeks of lockdown and we're doing loads of development conversations with our writers in Europe and in the UK and actually not traveling for all of those things some of them I will have to travel again for in the future mm. but knowing that not all of them is a flight has meant that I can pace myself differently mm. and is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you can talk about that you're particularly excited for um well we're finishing off we're in the last stages of finishing the souvenir two which is Joanna Hogg's follow-up to souvenir part one and I'm really excited about that because as I was saying like I'm a I'm a huge fan of Joanna so coming on to, coming into her creative process has been really fascinating and that was going on alongside normal people so it was a, like really interesting to see such different worlds of, um, of filmmaking happening I'm really excited for that being finished and when it'll come out into the world who knows at this moment but that's a lovely project and then I'm working with a British filmmaker called Harry Lighton on a project with BBC Films and I'm really excited about that because mm. it's wildly ambitious for a first feature and it's really complex but we are having amazing conversations about it and his aspirations for the film are really interesting and he's really he's really rigorous about sort of cliches or tropes or sort of easy options to take with character and storytelling and working through that process of sort of interrogating choices in his development and in his mm. writing I'm really, I'm really enjoying that yeah he, Ren, it's Ren Boys his short film right yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's hugely exciting and do you have any ambitions as a producer both you know individually and for element of the kind of stories that you want to be telling um is that something that you're constantly evolving or assessing I'm not like a massively strategic person I often just sort of instinctively respond to things or people or their work and so there are people whose work I'd like to be involved in like you're, you're there with Celine Sharma t-shirt on <laughs> I would love to work with Celine Sharma like if there's any way that she does an English language film I would love to love mm. that to be with Element so there's people that I feel like if their careers evolve in a certain way it'd be super exciting to be involved in that uh, in that process and in the meantime I suppose at the moment, I'm really focused on conversations with friends and getting that up and running as soon as possible. Mm. And, and that's a huge challenge because normal people are so successful. The conversations yeah. with friends will be a totally different thing. But again, it'll, people will meet it with a certain amount of expectation. And so the pressure to get that to be as good as it possibly can be. Mm. And also to learn from all the things I learned in normal people. <laughs> all of the lessons that I was like oh wow I didn't know what that was now I do <laughs> all of that stuff to bring that into fruition so rather than being in a planning phase I think I'm in a learning phase and trying to be conscious 
of all of the things I learned and not just let them fall by the wayside when I get too busy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of feel like that way about lockdown just in general, like using this as a time to like absorb rather than create. Yeah. And then hope yeah. that I come out of it with a desire to yeah use all those things I've learned. Yeah, exactly. Like have to give ourselves the time to reflect because I think everyone was very conscious of being insanely busy before this mm. and people are still really busy but there is like life has narrowed down and if the busyness is more contained I think that there is a bit more opportunity to to let your mind kind of process things mm. and speaking of learning have you had uh, something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career well like definitely normal people is the biggest learning curve of my career and I think there's lots of individual there's lots of things I've learned from that like lots of process things and lots of very simple facts and understanding how things get made but probably the kind of overall thing of it was that I had never executed a tv show before and I didn't know if I could do it I didn't know what it involved I didn't really know I was always having to google things <laughs> but the fact is I did know how to make films and I did understand all of those processes and what I learned was that so much I might not have technically had any experience exec producing, but I did have all the knowledge I needed. And mm. crucially, I learned just how collaborative the whole thing, whole process is. And that if you just keep asking all the people around you how to do the things that you don't know how to do or how to assess situations that may seem initially confusing to you, then you will be able to contribute meaningfully. And I was really in the middle of it all, the normal people. And in way, and I, I've had a really crucial role in a way that perhaps I didn't expect that I would because I didn't think I had the experience to. So, you know, it's a good lesson in taking the leap into something that scares you. And what was it about it specifically that felt like you couldn't do? Was it the largeness of the project or, yeah, was there something specific you were like, oh gosh, I've never done that before? Well, I mean, structurally, I suppose I'd never been in the scenario where you're editing one set of part one part of the project and shooting another part of the project so mm -hmm. that was one side of things I didn't know how that that balance worked and but it was the sort of technical a lot of the technical stuff about how tv is delivered and how when you're you're working through the edit of tv show there's so much that's going on simultaneously mm -hmm. and just kind of being able to keep track of all of those aspects and even what are the other technical things that I didn't understand? I mean, a lot of the stuff that the the, um, the US broadcasters and uh, uh, would talk to us in terms of marketing, just even the way that these shows are put out into the world, like I didn't know didn't know what the big events of the calendar were. You know, I didn't know what what the sort of points you had to hit were or the conversations that needed to start being made while you were shooting. So the, the you know the press that needed to come out to set to visit us to make sure that we were on the right lists and people were paying attention. There's a lot of things, you know, just pace of turning things around quickly. I was sort of I set a pace and I went, well let's go quickly, but I didn't know if that was how other people did it or other T V producers, you know. Um, and I worked one of the other EPs on the show with Anna Ferguson, who is a very experienced T V exec. And in the early days there was a lot of me going, Anna, how should we do this? How should we do that? And she was, I, I learned a lot from her, but I did ask a lot of questions and I, I'm glad I did. because mm. <laughs> Otherwise I would have been bumbling around. And I'm wondering off the back of that, if you had anyone else, you know, besides Anna or along your career that you've felt able to ask for advice or to, yeah, to go to for support? Well, I mean, 
Sue Bruce Smith was someone who gave me a lot of advice and, and she was quite, she was good as well. She wouldn't, she wouldn't mollycoddle me, you know, she would sort of say, I would kind of moan and be like, oh, you know, I'm not getting this or that or this. And she's like, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> she, she was very um, proactive and straight talking. and I really valued that. And um, also in this phase, I worked with producer Catherine McGee on Normal People and she's very wise an experienced Irish producer who like we talked a lot of you know some of the difficult times and normal people we would discuss the strategies of dealing with them and it was a very open conversation between her and I and I really valued that relationship because I she's a very calm very well respected woman and I felt like I had a lot to learn from her as well. Finally, what is a film that you've seen recently, either an old or new release by a woman director that you think is an undervalued gem? So I've been trying to think about this and the, the, the most honest in terms of the most recent thing I've seen is a, a short film called Garfield, but I don't think it's undervalued. I think people know that this is great. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I, I, will, I will say that, but it's by Georgie Banks Davis. Uh, so yeah, Garfield by Georgie Banks Davis. I just started catching up on all the short films that come out over the last few years and mm. really love this. Like it's so hard to get kind of quite bantery short film between a man and a woman right. And she does so in a really clever, natural and observational way. So I'm really, really impressed with that. But I, again, I, like that went to Sundance. So I think people know that's good. The other thing, I, the other film that I really enjoyed, and again, it's maybe not undervalued, but I'd recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it, is Only You by Harry Whitliffe, which I really, I really enjoyed. And I think there's such skill, she shows such skill in that film and the performances are incredible. And watched it when we were thinking about normal people and thinking about how to, how the intimacy with normal people will work and how those scenes will work. And I thought that what Harry captured with her two actors was a really charged and emotionally true portrayal of a relationship. So I'd recommend that. Both great recommendations. Emma, thank you so much for your time today. This has been such a brilliant chat. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please do peruse the back catalogue on iTunes, Spotify or Acast. I'll be back next week with another lockdown episode, but until then, have a safe week. Bye.